You have in front of you uh, a new sheet front and back. It says part four at the top. Um, we're going to get into that one um, probably about halfway through today. Uh, a little review and to help us kind of push forward uh, with it. Uh, we did look at uh, a, a document which was part, um, we did look at a document that was part two, and part two began with, or got us into the war and the effects of the war, uh, and then right before we got to the 1920s, I took a uh, a break and jumped you on ahead to part three. Uh, part three showed that by 1930 there was the uh, formation of the American Lutheran Church by the four uh, synods that were kind of in the Midwest, uh, Iowa, Ohio, Buffalo, and, and such, uh, coming together in 19. Uh, 30. When we talked about what was happening uh, about the time, we saw that, uh, as I had showed you with my diagram, that there were primarily three groupings of Lutheran churches at this time. There was the liberal East Coast, there was the uh, confessional uh, immigrants, uh, Missouri, Wisconsin, uh, those, and then there were the Midwest that were uh, uh, struggling back and forth in the middle. Uh, these three distinct camps were there. They primarily, as they were going through, had questions concerning the authority of the Bible, what constitutes unionism, uh, even uh, secret societies like the Lodge and, and such. When I ended that Bible class, uh, we saw that uh, the ULCA, United Lutheran Church, was trying to bring everybody together. Uh, Iowa and Ohio and Buffalo, having uh, had discussions with them, said, no, the doctrine is different. Uh, they then turned towards the Synodical Conference, Missouri and others, and said, uh, though we don't want to unite with you, we may want to unite with... Uh, Missouri and such, to which uh, the Synodical Conference responded with saying, although your doctrine on paper is pretty close, almost with us, we're concerned about practice and what is going on. And so maybe your leaders have uh, gotten you a, a, a good constitution, but is it going to be practiced? Um, uh, Iowa, Ohio then responds that Synodical Conference Missouri is unloving, fanatical, too concerned about pure doctrine, uh, to which the Synodical Conference said, yeah, when you're uniting with others, that's called unionism. That's kind of where we left that. I went back then, last time, to take a look at the changes that were going on. 
Yeah, I realize the 1920s comes before the 1930s, but often what's going on historically, you see it happening, and then later you see the effects of it, and so these are going on. What happened in the 1930s, that is the joining together, was back in the 1918s that, that that was put in motion. What's going on in the 1920s, we're going to see is going to have an effect on the 1930s and the 40s. As we took a look at the 1920s, uh, it was a potpourri of changes, and just every part of society was changing. The dissolution of, the, uh, of, of society affects the church. Um, religiously, uh, yeah, people weren't necessarily making that the center of their life. Why so many things were going on? Um, the family was breaking down. There were new methods and ideas concerning economic practices. They were dealing with this urbanization, and so now people were borrowing, usury, uh, life insurance, fire insurance, stock holding, and, and banks. What about all of this? You know, we used to uh, uh, take care of the pastor with, you know, uh, um, a pig and, and a little help. Now we're in urban societies. Now we're trying to... Uh, take care of these things, um, even pensions for workers as things change. We saw that in society, women's suffrage, uh, not only voting, but you know, so many things changed, using cosmetics, began to smoke, shorter dresses, drink in public, competing with, in business. Um, we saw that in the church, even teachers had always been male. Um, and now they were allowing them uh, into the teachers' colleges, even putting a limit on how many could uh, uh, come in. Um, Society-wise, uh, not only was the automobile beginning to connect everybody, and, and uh, I think their concern taking people away from family and church, you also had dancing, you had theater going, you had... Um, the church was responding to all these things that were having effect on the morality uh, of, of their members. Uh, science was now uh, being cited many times uh, to contradict religion. Religion was having to respond to it. Uh, back in the teens, um, I, I don't think that the Synodical Conference, Missouri, and those really had any response to evolution. Why? That they were isolated. But in the 1920s, um, and following the World War, we became Americans. It was an Americanization of the church, and the isolated cultures, we're the Germans, we're over here, uh, um, it, it went out. Um, things like the use of the English language uh, 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 in 10 years a flip of about 80% German uh, to in the 30s 80% English um, uh, and if you know, you're a pastor and you see all these crazy things happening you're going, you know, I think English is causing this <laughs> uh, um, uh, and so we had uh, these kind of things uh, Lutherans normally didn't speak up concerning this, but this cultural isolation began to change things. Uh, we had an overabundance of pastors at this point. They changed the way the seminary education was done. 
Uh, some of you know that like my third year of seminary uh, was a vicarage, was kind of an internship out in the, out in, that came about in the 1920s. Um, it was in order to slow the next class from going back out into the church too quickly because they had too many. Um, there were lots of changes uh, going on. Uh, parochial schools, um, uh, the, the government was, at least early on, locking down on all of these German teaching kind of things. Um, and then later there, you also had, uh, maybe we ought to teach religion in the schools, which many churches jumped onto. The Lutherans went, no, 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 that's not what we want. Um, uh, labor issues, um, urban influences, uh, response to after the Reformation, um, Catholicism, as well as false churches like Mary Baker Eddy and Scientism and things of this sort. Um, international organizations, as people became more connected, uh, began to get bigger. Um, and so, in one sense, there was a uh, a, a, a expanding of not just the congregation. It used to be me and my congregation. Now it's me and my senate. And now it's not just um, we're getting together, but now guess what? The youth from this congregation and this congregation and this congregation, and now youth efforts began to be, or you start to have these organizations, uh, Lutheran Women's Missionary League, Wather League, Lutheran Layman's League. All of these came about in the 1920s, you know, uh, through the 1930s. Uh, you also had, as things got bigger, who's going to speak for Lutherans? Who's going to speak for them? Well, before the Lutherans had, they had no concern about any of the other. We're just teaching the word. That's all we're doing. At this point, we established a office in Washington who would be someone who would speak on our behalf. This is when radio began to go out, and guess what? We want our view promoted. Before, that was considered, uh, um, that's boasting. Uh, no, no, you don't, don't do that. No, 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 now we have the Lutheran Hour. Now we have someone standing up and saying, here's, let us present Lutheranism. Public relations entered in. Again, you don't have this when you have isolated congregations and rural, but when it's gone urban, things are changing. Um, uh, there's concern about mixed marriages, that is, um, uh, not racial, but <laughs> Mary and the other Lutheran studies, whatever, how is this going? What's the, um, we have youth work I talked about. You may not realize that up until 1917, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Senate, was adamantly opposed to Sunday school. Again, one of these things where you kind of go, well, I, I saw these other, what are you talking about? Sunday, I mean, I, I just can't even imagine this thing being, how is this bad? A um, couple things. When Sunday school first came about, it came about in kind of an Anglican setting 
in which a pastor looked at the urban community and said, there's so many of these young kids that are, um, they're not going to school and they're not being taken care of and they're going to be in poverty. The concern for social gospel awareness was, I'm going to take these kids and they're not working in the factories on the weekend, so I'll take them on Sundays and I will teach the kids how to read, how to write, and how to count. And in this way, they'll become educated. That's what Sunday school started out as. Religiously, not much. Um, As it moved on, there began to be a little bit more, but it was religious with a lot of entertainment, you might say. Um, Missouri looked at it and said, it's fluff. What do, what do real Lutherans do? We have a parochial school. We have a, um, a school five days a week. We teach, you know, the reading, writing, and arithmetic, of course, but we teach the faith. And that's what's going on all the time. Um, when it came to Sunday, we have divine service. You know, the pastor preaches for an hour and a half, and then we have a service an hour and a half. You know, we have three hours here, and you might come back later. And, and, and so Lutherans didn't do this. It's not until the 1920s that finally there becomes a Lutheran school board that took care of producing Sunday school material. Um, separation of church and state. Um, we talked about going into the military. How are we going to do this? How are we going to do it with sentence? How are we going to... This is where chaplaincy started. And, you know, at this point, once you're into it, now you have to figure out, so if you're a chaplain, can you commune others or can you not? Well, who calls them? Well, how does this work? A lot of this stuff we backed into. It wasn't theologically we looked at this and then said, let's do it. We were forced into leaving German behind. We were forced into uh, these kind of things. Um, by the end of the late 1920s, Missouri now permitted many of these practices that at the beginning uh, there was a lot going on. Um, so that's what we find. It changed society. It changed the church. Um, you know, um, oh, I do want to deal with and we're going to come back to this because this was kind of my initial reason why I wanted to give you a history of American Lutheranism was to talk about worship, hymnals, and some of the things that uh, we're doing and taking a look at a, a new hymnal. Um, interesting enough, 1920s, not much changed in Lutheran worship. Interesting. Um, Lutheran worship changed only slightly in the 20s. Most of the old liturgical patterns continued, but with little appreciation of the corporate nature of worship. The people gathered together to hear the word preached, and everything else was secondary. Holy Communion was uh, interpreted as the assurance of forgiveness. It was a solemn, maybe even a sad occasion, with preparation limited to self-examination and personal repentance. So before there was uh, 
uh, you went and talked to the pastor the Saturday night before, announced for communion, he examined you, um, it's starting to go away with the 20s and 30s, um, in which you prepared. I remember when my, by the time, I mean, yeah, this is a little bit later, but I, I remember my parents, there was a, a sign-up sheet in the back of the church, and when you walked in, you signed your name if you were going to take communion. So what is that? Well, it used to be you talked to the pastor, then it was, you would announce, it finally came to about four minutes before the service, you signed your name, and then, well, okay, now we know you're going. Um, well, did it matter? Did anybody look? It was that, no, it didn't. Um, but those are some things. Um, uh, in more conservative groups, there was announcements still going on, but again, it's starting to change. Interesting enough, um, like I said, not much changes one thing in particular, substitution of individual communion glasses for traditional common cup. When does that happen? 1920s. Why? Well, science came along. And science said, this is the way you ought to do it. By the 1930s, you couldn't turn the clock back. It was done. Now, scientific you know, is there a good scientific reason why? Is it less likely to spread germs and whatever? No, even science-wise. I mean, it's glass. The other, you had metal, you had alcohol. That was a disinfectant. Um, the people that have to touch the rim in order to put it in there, and the, you have to touch it to bring it out. Yeah, it, anyway, uh, um, but that came about. Um, robes. Uh, congregation preferred black robes with white tabs. Um, the white uh, surpluses and these things started coming about. 1920s. Um, is when you began to see um, choirs getting robed and acolytes, young boys and girls coming in to, uh, uh, to light the candles. The old custom of separating men and women, even boys and girls, during the service. Boys sat on one side, girls sat on the other side, gave way to the mingling of the sexes. I don't know why he wrote that that way, but it just sounded so so bad. Um, oh, we talked about that last time. Um, before uh, World War One, typical church building, very uh, sparse, very small, lacking in depth. You didn't want to have a whole lot in there as an urbanization and things moved forward. Uh, there were also books written at the time, Luther Reed and some others, that talked about how here is the history of the church, and things got bigger, and things got better, um, and you began to see pyramids, and, um, and more, more than just in large, you began to see it even in small congregations. And so what we see today is really the result of, of a kind of a liturgical awareness Business methods came in. You began to see, as we talked about, envelopes, things of that sort. Um, let's see. I think that gets me the worship that I, I wanted to at least mention. Um, Hymnal-wise, um, they all used a hymnal. They were somewhat similar. We'll talk about later the common service that had come about. Many of those were moving into it. Missouri, actually, uh, which had been using a Walther hymnal, uh, which was a Lutheran service, you know, from where they were, um, almost by accident backed into the common service. And, um, uh, and it was after. But we're, we're beginning to see some, some changes that are going on.
at the end of the 20s, the Great Depression of 1929. Um, what had been the Roaring Twenties now changes. Did this have an effect? Yes. You saw budget reductions. Um, you saw the curtailment of missionary education enterprises. Missouri is one of the few that got their schools through that period of time. Many of those uh, are closed. Uh, even more in the area, as we saw with war, but now of social ministry, um, there are some that said, aha, the irreligion of the 20s is why God gave us the Great Depression in 1929. Uh, did they see a connection? Of course they did. Um, was it? You know, um, I don't know. Um, I, you can't always give a tip for tat, but you know, I've seen enough one of these fake kind of things where you kind of go, huh, doesn't surprise me um, if the Lord might want to do something that way. Missouri, which had uh, not been so concerned about anything, began to be more centralized. Everything got bigger in the 1920s. Well, now what are you going to do? Well, now you're going to look to the centralization to take care of you. Um, you're going to have to provide, uh, uh, and so it went backward. Um, talked about the change in seminary, talked about the Little League. A publication of family devotions, radio broadcasting. That's 1920s. Up to that point, it was a family endeavor. Um, the family had the Bible, they had their catechism, they took care of those things. You went to church, that was done. Now... You know, you're starting to get out the German portals of prayer, the things of that sort. Um, so these are the changes that are happening in the 1920s that has great effect on the 1930s. So much so that I'm going to say, I've been giving you my diagrams where I kind of show you all the Norwegians coming together. Then I showed you the American Lutheran Church where the four Midwestern synods um, all come together here with Iowa, Buffalo, Ohio, kind of this. And then you kind of see these over here. These are in the Synodical Conference. Um, uh, there was some talk of bringing them together into an organic union, not just we recognize each other's ministry and have alternate but actually folding them all in so that they would all be one. Uh, I, I'm going to get to that. But these three camps that, that I'm talking about, with the 1920s and into the 1930s, and now we're going to start pushing forward the 30s and 40s, that doesn't explain it anymore, that diagram, because something is happening in which they're no longer separate, they're no longer isolated, they're no longer kept apart what we're going to find is that within these groups, it's no longer the same. That is, you might be in here, and you might be more like this group over here or that. And so we're going to find that due to this interaction, uh, we're going to see that, uh, uh, we're going to see a bit of a, uh, a change, though you may not see it quite yet, in, in, in outward, but the change always happens inside, and later you see it comes out. All right, so that gets us kind of up to where we're, we need to be. I want to start taking a look at part four that we have there. Any questions? <coughs> Shirley? As far as uh, youth going through catechism, was that taught at home, 
prior to, I mean, has that always, or has that always been taught by the pastor in the church? Um, yes. Uh, now, and, and if we're talking American Lutheran kind of thing, as well as before they came over, um, you know, did, I did Luther write that for the heads of the family? Absolutely. Um, and, you know, intended to be used. And I, I'll give you a real good example. Um, even to the, to the very end of his life, my, my father, Oliver Kreml, um, I would go, I would be at his house, and he would have his German-English catechism open, and periodically he would be going through it. So it was being done. That being said, the pastor taught confirmation, and he used the small catechism. So it wasn't an either-or, it wasn't something, but what was going on at home, you know, the pastor was also doing, because he was the head of the family of the congregation, and he was the one who was taking care of it. Now, to just give you just a quick kind of overview, at Luther's time, you had catechetical services, you had them three, four times a year during the Ember Days, and this kind of teaching. They also had schools where, where they did it. Um, there was not a confirmation service. There was not that, you know, kind of every on Sunday, you know. Um, when the kids, uh, when the parents felt they were ready, they brought them to the pastor. The pastor sat down and met with them and said, yes, they, you know, know the doctrine and they're ready to come. And then they would commute. So that didn't really come about until a little bit later. Um, yeah. and, and that's about American Lutheranism time. Other questions? Part four. After this Americanization, and that's the big thing, all as everything changed, um, you still have three camps, but let's see what's going on. 1930, the Synodical Conference uh, consisted of what's later called LCMS, ELS was Little Norwegian, Wisconsin, um, and Slovak. Um, a little thing happened in 1899. There was a disciplinary case in Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, it ended up getting resolved in 1911, and it involved... Um, uh, it just, the details are not that important, but there was a couple pastors in a large congregation, some layman, for whatever reason, pulled his child out of a parochial school, put him in a public school. I don't know the whole kind of thing. The pastors then excommunicated the layman. He appealed it to his senate. And again, now senates are a big thing. Um, they then have to deal with it. As they're trying to deal with this, uh, these two pastors decide that they don't like Wisconsin and they apply for membership in Missouri. But the case is still going on, and Missouri doesn't want to mess up their relationship with Wisconsin, so we can't really accept you until this happens. One of the pastors dies. Fi you know, finally they come in. Uh, um, Walter comes. They do end up, quote, resolving it. But what turns out is not the issues of that case, which are really irrelevant. The issues are... So who is going to decide this issue of if this excommunication is correct or not? Do you decide it at the congregation level in which the either the pastor and or the congregation says, you did that right or you didn't, and if you didn't do it right, then you need to leave, or if it's right, then that, you know. Or do you have the Senate 
speak to this and someone else come in. So one issue was, who is church? Have we been this somewhere before? Is this you? Yeah. And and now this is Wisconsin. But again, we've had Buffalo River. Yeah. And so what did Missouri? Missouri said the congregation is the only divinely instituted form for church. Senate is only church because it's made up of congregations. Wisconsin said otherwise. In fact, Wisconsin said that's not the only form. And in fact, you know, anywhere you have kind of this. And, and so, oh, well, then the next question became, um, as it went forward, well, we're a little bit concerned about these pastors and what they're doing, and maybe someone else needs to step in and, and to speak of this. And Missouri said, the only divinely instituted form for the pastoral office is the parish pastor. Wisconsin said, uh, no. In fact, we think the public ministry, the office, the public ministry, is every one in the priesthood of believers. And so now the question became, yeah, and what is ministry? Huh? Have we been here before? Yeah. I mean, you know, Walter wrote the book on office and the minister, and you know, and, and the response and whatever. Yeah, that's the issue. Um, those were the things. Finally, in about 1932, uh, they called it with a document uh, called the Thingsville Theses. I don't want to get into this. I'm going to say they calmed it. You want to say it's an agreement, you can say whatever you are. Um, I can tell you up until just recent times, that issue has still erupted. And finally, um, oh, 10, 12, about 12, 15 years ago, um, it blew the ELS apart. Um, Wells and ELS. But yeah, we've got to leave that behind. The point is, is that the only reason I bring this up is when I tell you that the synodical conference over here and it looks like they're all in straight lines, there is, uh, they're not united. They are arguing back and forth. And where they are going together, as things come up, they realize, yeah, things are not what we think. 1935. 1930, ALC comes together, American Lutheran Church, American Lutheran Conference, they're all together. The ULCA and this new American Lutheran Church begins having discussions, and they issue invitations to others to come, let's see if we can all get together. ALC, in one of their uh, conventions, says, we would like to establish fellowship either with the ULCA or the Synodical Conference. Now, at this point, you know, I, you got to go, these are two different animals, and you're thinking, you can, you know, that ought to let you know that what they're thinking, something's not gone right, you know, in the ALC. The LCMS, interesting enough, in 1935 says, sure, we'll talk to you. The others in the Synodical Conference says, do you know what you're doing you're going to go, I mean, I mean it's, it's one thing to go talk to your neighbor, but when you know what they have on paper and you know what they're doing and you know that the LC and what the ULC, yeah, they're not, partly even Lutheran, and they warned Missouri against this. 
Between 1936 and 1935, this United Lutheran Church continues to have these discussions uh, trying to bring things together. Um, For the United Lutheran Church, you might remember, they've now got the confessions, the Lutheran confessions in their constitution. And the American Lutheran Church in 1930, they've got the Lutheran confessions right in the constitution. And guess what? Missouri ought to be happy because we've always had... Same thing. See? Guess what? We're all Lutheran. And you know what? As society is going crazy, we Lutherans need to... Stick together. Yeah, so you can see what's going on. For the ULC, they said, we've got confessional subscription. You guys do too. We ought to get together. For Missouri, there was... Wait a minute... We're concerned about what your theology is, especially as we're talking about the United Lutheran Church, and we're concerned about the uniformity to it, because we see what you're practicing, and it doesn't agree with what you've written down. Sincere theological unity would be accomplished by uniformity in teaching and in practice. In other words, we want to see theological statements, but we want them followed by either practice or discipline and taking care of those that are not doing it. And so, Missouri and the ULC, as things went forward, even in these, uh, they talk about the scriptures. I've already mentioned the ULC. I I mentioned something called higher criticism, in which you take a look at the Bible, and you decide which parts are right, and which parts are not, and you can, you can, you know, Moses wrote this, but he he may have meant something, and, and, and you go... Um, the ULC came to it, and, and Missouri said, the Bible is the inerrant, inspired Word of God. And the ULC said, well, the Word of God is inspired and inerrant. Definitely not saying the same thing. What do you mean we're not saying the same thing? Because they're saying parts of it are not the Word of God. Because Missouri was saying that this was inspired and inerrant. The ULC was saying, this is the scriptures, and inside here is the word of God, and the word of God part is inspired and inerrant. But this is not, in scripture and the inspired word and word of God are not the same thing. So you begin to distinguish, that's higher critical method. And so... Missouri said, because the word of God is inspired and inerrant, uh, that makes it the word of God, and thus we can trust what it says. They said, because the word of God speaks about the salvation which Jesus Christ accomplished for us, that makes this the word of God and important. So rather than saying, it's only important because of that, when it speaks about a six-day creation, that's irrelevant. You can see how what, and and at this point the ULC is full-blown into this, see no problems with it, um, going, oops. Discussions broke off due to biblical inerrancy. The ULC accused Missouri of being fundamentalistic. You guys, you know, of course we all trust in Jesus, and you want to go so far as to be, you're fundamentalist, you're, you're, 
making the whole Bible, every word inspired and inerrant, oh, that's, you know, you might as well be Protestants. Um, as these, do- as these uh, discussions went forward, two statements came out. One by Roy, who was from Iowa, uh, or the ALC, Jacobs, which is the ULC. The ULC adopt Jacobs statements as later, no- later known as the Baltimore Declaration of 1938. We've already talked about this, in which everyone looked at that and said, yeah, now we know exactly where you guys are, and, and, and pushed them off. The ALC adopted Roy's statement, it's later known as the Sandusky Declaration. Interesting enough, though, Roy, um, Michael Roy, who was in Iowa, uh, mostly conservative, had bought into higher criticism. And he was one that agreed with the ULC concerning the scriptures, that they were not inspired and in error. He later changes his mind in about 1940s, um, but at this point... Um, you, you can think how things get, get muddy pretty quickly, and it's not quite as uh, uh, kept in boxes. I imagine when the ULC made this, this higher criticism, it was they probably could not have foreseen what that was going to do to their church in the long run of what would be attacked in the scriptures. I mean, probably at the time they believed in the six-day creation. Right. And now it's completely denied by many members. Um, Higher criticism came from Germany. Um, It was considered the new biblical method, and if you want to be on cutting edge of scholarship and be smart and, you know, walk around in big circles, that's what you did. Pretty well, everyone, uh, um, as that came over, they adopted it. Um, Others did not. I can tell you that every major denomination in America today simply uses it without criticism. You know, except for like Missouri, Wisconsin, ELS, who absolutely say no. But everyone else uses it. So, I mean, it, it's, it's taken over at this point. Um, you know, you get the book out and it says, you know, yeah, Paul was wrong here. And, and anyway. Um, but, but did they know? You know, yeah, I'm, and, you know, I, I, in the end, what are you going to see happen? You're going to see all of these things, 1930, 1960, 1980s, and they're all going to come together into the ELCA. Um, Missouri and Wisconsin are going to hold off. Missouri's going to lose some some an X. Um, ALC, 1930. <laughs> they looked at this and said, yeah, we don't want to. We're going to seek fellowship with Missouri. They turned more towards the Norwegians and the Missouri Senate, and so these discussions began to go forward. ALC offered Missouri fellowship, saying we believe our Sandusky Declaration is in accordance with your brief statement of 1932. I'm going to come back to that. Um, That is an important document that gets produced in Missouri. Um, This is during this period of time. But ALC says, hey, let's get together. Uh, they had reached agreement on live membership unionism, not yet on scripture due to Roy. Uh, the ALC held the Bible was unbreakable. That, uh, the only reason I put this in here is that often, here's the problem. There are times that you need to put down a thesis. You need to write down what you believe and say, is this what, you know, we both believe in the Bible. Great. What do you believe about the Bible? Well, then I write it down and, and you go, yeah, it's not what I believe. So uh, it can help. There are other times that 
writing things down. Um, so here's what I'm going to write down. Do you, do you like this? And you say, well, no, I don't agree with that. And I go, okay, well, let me write it down again. Now do you like it? No. We write it down again. About the fourth time, you kind of go, oh, yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's what I, well, did I, the question is, did I change my belief or did I just change what I wrote to you? If there is this concern, we've got to get together, we've got to get together, let's try to get together. The emphasis is on trying to make something that we can all agree on. It may be that, you know, inspired and inerrant. I know what those terms mean. As soon as you leave theological words behind and you tell me it's unbreakable, what does that mean? I don't know what that means. And so you also had this go on where there were discussions in which words were used that could hide intentionally, unintentionally. Um, that's the Pittsburgh Agreement of 1940. What? Stephen? How do you answer people that talk about uh, using the translation of the Bible from generation to generation that it's not God's inherent word? Um, we do have our pastor study the original Greek and the Hebrew because, yes, sometimes, you know, you want to make sure that what has been translated into English agrees with that which is is there. So that's not considered higher criticism where you put your reason above God's word. Um, the distinction is this. If you want to talk about the distinction between higher and lower criticism. Higher criticism is where reason is put above the Word of God. So I see the Word of God, and it says Jesus walked on water. I know who Jesus is, I know what water is, and I know what walk means. If I am a higher critic, my reason says, yeah, n nobody can do that. Therefore, there must have been stones there, there must have been, you know, it's just... Lower criticism says, I know what all those things mean, I don't, reason-wise, I don't know how that works, but I hold my reason under God's word, and I confess that he actually did it. How this happened, I don't know. Um, looking at, at uh, Bible translations is one of these of lower... It's not a matter of trying to deny the word of God. It's trying to make sure. Um, for laymen, you know, I, I'll sometimes tell someone, get a parallel version of the Bible. That is, you get this Bible, it's got the NIV, the New King James, the King James, whatever, puts all four side by side. If, if you're kind of going, I'm kind of wondering, watch those four and take a look at it, and you can see if they track together. It's pretty easy. Um, 1930s. After the 1930s, guess what? The primary questions remained among Lutherans. What was the source? Well, I know source. What was, what was the overall problem that, that was in the water? We had varying definitions of confessional unity. All of them confessed the Book of Concord. They all said it was in their constitution. They all said it was, you know, part. But what was it? Some said we agree with it because it agrees with the Word of God. Some said we agree with the confessional subscriptions insofar as it agrees with the Word of God. Some said we like those documents because historically that's where we came from. Um, granted, but, but, but they all had it. And at times they would cite it. Um, nevertheless, number one, the authority of the Bible. I've already given you an example of, of, of that. That continued to plague. 
And when you began to have discussions, let's talk about our differences now. It didn't take long before, if I'm citing the Bible and you're citing the Bible and you're a higher critic, you know, I say here is what it is and it didn't quite work out. So that stymied and really made it so that we went, yeah, I don't know if we can talk because we don't have the same basis. I find it very ironic that 100 years ago they were dealing with this on a Senate basis. Senate's talking to each other, and now the LCMS, they have to deal with this on a church basis within the Senate. And they, I mean, all these churches have different definitions of confessional unity. They don't, they don't agree within their own Senate about what it is. So how are you going to talk to other dioceses and Senates and, when you don't even agree internally about it? At this point, the disagreements that I'm talking about are being brought forward by the leaders of the Senates. Um, you know, what, what's going on at the people level? Well, it's not going to take long to what's here is going to be here. I don't, I don't know at what point between the 1918 and 1945... Um, I don't know when that affected the people in the pew. Uh, what I'm saying is this, that the pastor preaches something out, and it takes a while for it to come out of the people's mouths. And now, guess what? It's all coming out. Um, so, yes. Um, am I doing time pretty well? Authority of the Bible. Guess what? Number two. What constitutes unionism? Um, how are we going to decide whether we're going to get together? Number three was lodge membership. I'm going to leave that. I've talked about that before. In other words, how do we determine if we're going to get together? The ULCA, the United Lutheran Church, said, you all came to be Lutherans. You put your confessions in the Constitution. Um, let's do it. In fact... Finally, by the end, after all of this wrangling back and forth, the ULC responded, there will be no further definitions of doctrine that are necessary and nothing beyond the Lutheran confessions that we're going to submit to. Forget it. No more tests of Lutheranism. We are Lutheran. And that's it. Whoa. Um, why? Because ALC and Sanago comments are saying we're not quite sure based upon we're talking about doctrine and practice. Um, brief statement. Now let's get to it. 1932. You're going to so, skip the lodge membership? I'm going to skip that just because we've talked about it before. If you're a member of a lodge where they have religious, we're not talking Lions Club where you just help people. We're talking about where they have an altar and they put three different Bibles, the Jewish and the whatever, and then they say that you're saved by good works. How can you be a member of the church and also be a member of the law? Okay, that's, that's it. Yes. Brief statement, 1932. The Missouri Senate puts this together in about 1931. The statement itself is designed to be brief. We're trying to have discussions with these other church bodies we want to just go through the topics and give us a brief paragraph 
that deals with what's at issue with scripture, with fellowship, with with whatever. And and that was the idea that we could have a document that we could come to and say, if you want to have fellowship with us, here's where we start. So that was the idea. Um, where does this document come from? Franz Pieper, who is the uh, successor to CFW Wather. Um, now, Wather was a synodical president and the seminary president, and he, he like did everything. Pieper is the seminary president, and he follows after. He is the one who picks up the mantle, and he is the successor for Walther. If you're kind of saying, what's going on? You look to, you look to Walther report, and now you look to Pieper. And he is the one. He's the one that writes the Christian dogmatics. I've got it at my, it's a three volumes, and a fourth volume is the index. It's huge. And that's what they use. He pretty well wrote the curriculum. Um, he had a statement in German that he wrote. They translated it and turned it into the brief statement in 1932. Interesting enough, Franz Pieper, born in 1852, died in 1931. So, um, concern... He didn't get to give an opinion on their translation. (laughs) Um... Carl Meyer is a historian within Missouri who does a very good job of explaining the history that's going on. Regarding the brief statement, he says, the year 1932 has been called the confessional high watermark of the Missouri Senate because of the adoption of a brief statement in that year. Not only was it Dr. Pieper's legacy of sound scriptural teaching, but it was also, so it was maintained with evident exaggeration, the testimony of a confessional unity of mind and heart embracing every pastor and congregation and enduring the test of search, searching examination by the norma normans of Holy Scripture. The, the Scripture is the norming norm. It norms everything, and everything within it is right. So if, you, if, if this comes from Scripture, it will be also without error, and it will be true. Carl Meyer's statement is absolutely right. What does it mean is something else. Because the question is this. Uh, um, does Pieper do a good job? Is he primarily the author of it? Yeah. Does he good, do a good job of setting it forth? Absolutely. Um, now, granted, and, and we have to, you know, um, I'll, I'll show it to you, you know, um, uh, objective justification, it's in there because Walter taught it and Pieper taught you know, but he, and he explains it really well. You know, with the people think, oh, it's not a part of the doctrinal thing. Yeah, it's right there. And and, um, and he does a real good job. He briefly explains it. But that being said, set that all apart. Um, Pieper does a very good job. However, this statement, is it a testament to the mind and heart of every pastor, every congregation, so that this is what Missouri all holds to. No. This is the last document that that is the last shot that's fired. But I'm going to tell you, already 
15 years down the road and due to 1920s, it's not what's going on in Missouri. We are divided. And we can already see it in 1932 a little bit. When we get to 1945, it erupts um, in a statement of the 44. We'll get to that later. But the point being is that, is it a legacy? Yes. Is it a high watermark? Yeah, but not because at this point everything's still pure. It's already started to go away, and this is trying to build the dam to stop what is coming. And so, if you take a look at, um, and I'm going to uh, quote from uh, uh, Nelson uh, concerning, let's see, um, theological attitude of the churches. Um, by the opening of the 1930s, these non-theological factors, all those 1920s stuff I'm talking about, had begun to recede, and as one set of factors began to lessen another set, the parallel theological problems began to assume some prominence. The questions which disturbed American Lutherans centered about the varying definitions of confessional unity, they all had their uh, subscription to the confessional writings, things of that sort, uh, 458, uh, whether you're going to uh, uh, have confessional unity with theological uniformity or not. I'm going to come on down here. I, I talked about those threefold uh, things uh, that is there. 1930, uh, the largest American Lutheran church body, uh, uh, the United Lutheran Church, had addressed itself. I talked about uh, what they were doing. They were following historical criticism uh, without guilt or fear, um, and obviously going different from what uh, the scriptures and, and, and Missouri was uh, speaking of. Um, oh, here it is. Um, Missouri and the Wisconsin Senate in 1930 continued to be the most influential partners in the Synodical Conference. Uh, Wisconsin was about the third aside of Missouri, but they worked together. The chief, and, and, and they fought together like brothers, okay, um, as I showed. The chief architect of Missouri's theological position was Franz Pieper, professor at Concordia Seminary, author of the Senate's Guide to Dogmatic Rectitude. He's talking about Christian dogmatics. Um, Nelson is, is not quite a supporter of real Lutheranism. Peter viewed the Luther confessions through the eyes of the 17th century dogmatics who were repristinated by an anti-Schleimachian group of German Lutherans about mid-19th century. I can't explain the whole thing. Let me just say it to you this way. When Peter went to the Lutheran confessions, he read it through the 17th century dogmatics, that is, the people that inherited this right after it, he said, you know what? If they said that this is what this said, I agree with them. That's the way I read this kind of thing. Many other people said, oh, you can read the Lutheran Confessions, but we understand it in a different way. And so they accused Peeper of repristination. You're just, you're just repeating what the 17th century theologians said without thinking about it. Don't you have a mind of your own? Can't you, can't you 
engage in, I mean, obviously we've got the mind and science and all of this that we can, that we can understand. You're just repristinating the advocates of a repristination theology. That would be synodical conference. That's you guys felt that the true Lutheranism could only be secured by inserting, asserting the inerrancy of a verbally inspired Bible and a dogmatic use of the confessions. And so when Pieper brings this up, this is the last kind of stronghold of what they're trying to do. But I can tell you that everybody else poo-pooed it. And there were those in Missouri that kind of went, you know, I... I've been hanging around with my Lutheran buddy down the road. He's not that bad. Are you sure we can't get together with him? Um, and that's what was going on. Pastor? Well, I think, I think that this, if, if you follow this back all the way, Schleiermacher was a rationalist. And what, you, what, you, what, were your, what we are talking now is the, ninth, or the 20th century... Development of rationalism from the from the 1700s to 1800s. Now it's developed into the into the 20th century. You have rationalism, and that's what's attacking the church. And <laughs> that statement that you just read points out to you that Nelson also is a rationalist. You bet. I'm going to push forward. I got just a little bit more. I know I'm right at 10. Missouri remained into the 1960s sharply divided on the matter of allegiance to a repristination theology as epitomized in the so-called brief statement whose main author was Pieper. Nelson, yeah, historically looked at this and said, listen, uh, um, that's, that's exactly what's going on. Um, for... Um, Our brief survey of the theological stance of the churches at the beginning of the 30s shows that American Lutheranism found difficulty in meeting the problems posed by liberalism and fundamentalism. All Lutherans, by the beginning of the 20th century, were committed to a confessional viewpoint. That is, they all had the confessions. The debates took place were largely limited to problems within this tradition, as been pointed out above. The first intimation of change appeared in the United Lutheran Church. Um, for the first time, a major Lutheran church body uh, sought to uh, take on the evangelical position to contemporary questions. Um, this is the point where I'd like to, you know, I just have to stop. I'd, I'd love to have given you the brief statement and to show you that. I'll, I'll start with that next time. But Nelson puts it in these terms. The modernist, fundamentalist controversy of the mid-twenties. He views it as the synodical converse and Murray's are fundamentalists, repristinating. And the rest of these are just trying to be according to the spirit of Lutheranism. So this is the way he sets it up. But no. Um, was the choice, he wants to know, here's what they're left with. Was the choice that lay before Lutherans who wished to be loyal to the gospel limited to two alternatives. So at this point they're going, well, wait a minute, are there, are there only two alternatives? Is it either to repristinate an orthodox view of the scriptures? You know, are you, are you saying that's the only way we have to believe and teach and confess just as Lutherans have always done for 400 years? That's one uh, uh, um, 
and, and there are others, you know, the Roman Catholics say, hey, I want to be Roman Catholic, we're going to do it this way, or the Protestants say, we're going to do it this way. Um, or is the only other choice to abandon the Lutheran confessionals um, and leave them behind and, and do whatever? Um, some concluded that these were the only choices. That's you guys. You think that's the only choices. Um, as far as scripture was concerned, they found it impossible to disassociate themselves from the viewpoint that affirmed a verbally inspired inerrancy of the Bible. The Synodical Conference, the American Lutheran Conference, and a large number of people and pastors in the United Lutheran Church rested in this kind of attitude. Guess what? There were a lot of people that had this, like you did, in all three branches. But several professors in the United Lutheran seminaries had found that Luther himself had liberated them from this orthodoxism. Oh, you were caught in orthodoxism. And guess what? Luther could set you free from that. You wouldn't be so mean and hateful. And he led them to, oh, a Christ-centered and soteriological view of the scriptures. We don't worry about inerrancy. We just worry about Christ. The Bible's authority lay not in its inerrancy, but in its religious message. And so guess what? We've left that behind, and now we're moving forward. Last part. The year 1940 was in some respects a watershed the American Lutheran Church turned more and more to the Norwegian Lutheran Church and the Missouri Senate. Um, they tried to bring things together. Uh, the American Lutheran Church moved towards a merger of those in this uh, conference, um, which finally resulted in, we'll get to that later, the new ALC in 1960. Here's the last part. The United Lutheran Church, smarting under the experiences culminating in the 1940s, and the convention said, yeah, we're going to do no more test the Lutheran. Don't accuse us of not being Lutheran anymore. We're Lutheran because we say we're Lutheran. The question that had disturbed American Lutheranism since the 20s and 30s, does confessional unity require theological uniformity? Do you have to be united in doctrine and practice? It remained unsolved into the 70s. But the United Lutheran Church, and after that, 1962, the Lutheran Church in America, said, no, you don't have to be united in doctrine and practice. We can get together. The American Lutheran Church and the Missouri Senate said, uh, yeah, it, you do have to have that in order to get together. There, the problem posed by Lutheran's confessional principle resided until the late 60s and early 70s. That's where they left it. So, those three branches, as I said, they're, they're, that made sense. Now, all of a sudden, we realize that within these groups, it's not united. They're not, they're allowing different points of view and different things going on. And as it's not being taken care of, things are going to change. That gets us to about, as I mentioned, 1940 or so. We'll take a look at the brief statement, um, because yeah, we'll take a look at that next time. We'll also take a look at the next big uh, break is 1960, and we're going to see another church merger. Hmm.
Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you have directed history according to your guiding hand. Uh, even when those think that they are going against your word, you, your purposes of bringing forth good even out of evil uh, cannot be thwarted. Uh, even as you brought Abraham out, and, and though he suffered in Egypt and came back out again. So we ask now um, that even as you work in our history, that you would keep us faithful to your word and that uh, your will uh, might be done. We ask it all through Jesus Christ our Lord. 